MoFAT's public events committee and the bookworm. I'd now like to introduce Lynn Clark, who is owner of the bookworm and a member of the board of directors and first Amer amendment chairperson of the Southeast Booksellers Association. Lynn Clark. Thank you. Uh, today we have in Jackson Roy Blunt, who I have just learned in the last 30 minutes I've been introducing incorrectly as a writer or an author. He's actually a person who's good with words, who is lucky enough to get published, and uh, hopefully y'all have been lucky enough to read some of his work. He appears in Jackson um, partially under the auspices of Penn American Center, as Jane said. Penn stands for poets, essayists, and novelists, and they are currently engaged, Penn is currently engaged in a cooperative project with the ACLU to spend a year and money sending authors, writers, people who are good with words, to places in the country where First Amendment questions are cropping up, uh, places where, as here in Jackson, organized uh, conservative right-wing groups are spending a lot of time and effort trying to tamper with your right to read and his right to write. So with no further ado, I give you good old Roy. <laughs> referring to is a piece I wrote for the New York Times book review coming out Sunday about uh, what an author does. And, uh, you know, I, it always seemed to me uh, pretentious even to say I was a writer when people ask me what I do, but to, uh, when people ask me, am I an author, I really feel silly because uh, it seems to me that uh, an author is just something you do every now and then, and uh, it's, uh, it's like being the groom. You do occasional things. And, uh, you, uh, you know, it's hard, if you start thinking of yourself as an author, you sort of lose track of exactly what it is you're supposed to do. Because uh, there's no real present tense of the verb to author. You know, nobody ever says, if somebody opens the door and looks in on you and says, what are you doing? You don't ever say, I'm authoring. And that's the test, I think, of a good verb. If, uh, you can't ever actually be doing it at, the, at, at a given moment. It must not amount to much. But in fact, being an author, one thing being an author entails is uh, making speeches. And uh, this, uh, I've been doing this last, uh, all last week. I've been going to Chicago and Pittsburgh and Nashville, uh, doing two different things. One is to... Uh, uh, speak out against the banning of books. Uh, as as uh, Lynn said, there's this uh, organization called PEN, which uh, um, stands up and objects to things like uh, the torturing of poets and the uh, banning of books. And, uh, my own uh, feeling is that it depends on the poet, but uh, <laughs> I don't think it does depend on the book. I think uh, every book ought to you know, well, of course. I mean, I'm looking at it from uh, looking at it from my point of view. Uh, uh, best thing in the world could happen to me would be to get my book banned because uh, you know it gets in the paper and uh, uh, 
people read about it all over the country and think, well, now there's a boy's doing something. He's got his book banned. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, uh, so writers, good for writers to get banned, but, uh, I mean, up to a point, you know, within reason, you don't want to get banned to the point that uh, people can't buy it. But uh, people get hurt are readers. And uh, because you might be in a place where you can't get out a book, and uh, you might have been just about ready to read a book that would have opened up your life to a whole lot of things, and then somebody uh, come through the library and take it out. I think, in fact, that uh, in Decatur, Georgia, where I grew up, uh, Ms. Louise Trotty, who was a librarian, uh, kept everything out without even worrying about it. You know, I think uh, it used to be that books. Uh, you didn't have to be a vigilante group to get books banned. You were just a nice lady, you know. And uh, so I think it's healthy that uh, people are, that uh, book banning has become an open issue and that people are arguing about it and fighting about it. But on the other hand, uh, I, uh, uh, you know, there are these groups that go around through bookstores uh, looking around and, and uh, looking at all the books and taking little notes to see whether they deserve to be in American bookstores. And uh, I think that uh, that kind of activity is healthy only so long as everybody who hears about it thinks it's the stupidest thing they ever heard of. And I'm, I'm here to, uh, so that's one of the things I'm doing is going around uh, recognizing uh, the right of people to try to ban books as long as everybody Nobody lets them get away with it, and everybody realizes uh, what jerks they are. That's put a little too strongly. I'll get back to that point. But uh, another thing I'm doing is promoting my own book, which uh, self-serving activity up to a point. I mean, uh, it seems self-serving, but uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't exactly self-luxurious because uh, you maybe you sell a few books, but meanwhile you get uh, sick and tired of hearing yourself talk, and I don't know whether that's a good trade-off or not. I've been uh, going around talking on the radio and talking on TV and talking to reporters, and I'm reminded one time when I uh, wrote a story about Steve Garvey, the Sports Illustrated. Uh, Garvey, who's a extremely clean-cut first baseman for the Dodgers, said he always liked to think that there was a small boy standing right behind him. Try to conduct himself accordingly, which struck me as uh, one of the most uh, hellish notions I ever heard of. But, uh, uh, sometimes I feel like uh, I've got a small boy standing behind me, and the small boy is me, and the small boy is saying, you're not going to say that again, are you? So I keep trying to work out something new to say. and. Uh, Trying to forget what I said before, so I won't say it again. And it's the same. And you know, it's hard to make speeches and also uh, uh, make attractive the notion of free speech. But uh, <laughs> I'm trying to do what I can. Uh, and and I just started. I, I was talking in a high school in uh, Nashville the other day. Started talking about a principle which I had, I had used in high school writing classes before. It doesn't seem to have much to do with free speech, but the more I talked about it, the more I thought it did, uh, which I call a bow-wow principle, which uh, uh, 
sometimes I go into, I won't do it here among you uh, dignified folks, but uh, sometimes I go into a school bunch, a bunch of kids in a classroom and say, uh, what sound does a dog make? And the first person will usually uh, say, bow wow. And they'll say, no. And, uh, and other people, I mean, without putting the person there. And other people will uh, get other people to volunteer. Finally, somebody will start barking. And they'll say, now you're, you know, you're getting close. Seems to me that uh, what writers do is, uh, one of the things writers do is to uh, uh, resist the bow wow principle that, uh, you know, what a dog does or what anybody else does or what anything is like has been summed up in words already. You know, in fact, uh, all kinds of things have been said before and uh, put into words and uh, those words have sort of gotten settled into the back of our minds and uh, it seems to me that uh, people who ban books are people who pursue the bow wow principle to the extent that they have certain words they like to uh, dwell on and pronounce loudly in public forums or fora or whatever the plural forum is and uh, like to keep uh, harking back to and, uh, Certain words that they think almost everything smacks of. It's words like uh, communism and uh, evolution, uh, which seem to me the way they use them are just like bow wow. They just heard it once and uh, decided that was uh, what uh, subversion was like. It was uh, evolution and communism and anything. There's, for instance, one of the books that has that groups have been trying to ban is a group is a book called. Uh, Julie and the Wolves, which is a, one, is a children's book, won the Newberry Award in 1973, about a young Eskimo girl who's lost in the Arctic and befriended by wolves. There's a Missouri group called Citizens for Academic Excellence, which objected to this book because Julie's dependence on the wolf pack, quote, teaches the collectiveness of socialism and communism. And that the death of a sickly wolf subtly endorsed, quote, survival of the fittest, unquote, in line with the theory of evolution. Now, I really don't see how you can be against both collectiveness and survival of the fittest. But, uh, these people are because both things are un-American and, uh, uh, and they want to, you know, get rid of it. And uh, I think also people who ban books are people who like to stand up in uh, uh, places like this or school board meetings and uh, use uh, loudly and with uh, a lot of timber and uh, resonance words like filth. They like to brand things as filth and smut. It seems to me that uh, people who like to say filth and smut a lot are uh, expressing some kind of inner, uh, inner compulsion that uh, seems to me a lot uh, filthier and smuttier than uh, than the books there, uh, any book I can imagine them, uh, imagine having been in the school library to begin with. Uh, and I think that's just another way of saying bow wow. Uh, only fill the smuts a lot more easy, uh, a lot more interesting to say than bow wow. But, but uh, it's still just a matter of just sort of uh, seizing on one kind of notion and uh, repeating it over and over. What a, what a writer wants to do is to hear some kind of notion like that 
and go after the sound that a dog actually makes, try to spell a bark. You know, when I'm in writing class with a bunch of kids, we all get together and try to spell what a, a given bark might look like on the page. Because that's the kind of thing, that's a real literary challenge, I think, and it's the uh, kind of thing that got me into writing, because my mother used to read me, uh, my mother taught me to spell phonetically which, when I was a little kid, and she also would read me Uncle Remus stories. Uncle Remus stories are an interesting uh, thing to look at now, I think, because the uh, passages in between the stories themselves in which the uh, the little white kid talks to the venerable old black man as if he were a sort of household pet are uh, extremely offensive. But the stories themselves uh, are wonderful. And I always wanted to see um, uh, uh, Burr Rabbit portrayed in a movie by uh, either Jack Nicholson or Richard Pryor. Thank you, good movie, and, uh, and that, you know, Joel Chandler Harris, who is the author of those books, deserves only a certain amount of credit for him, because he, he deserves, uh, uh, our, deserves to be regretted for the stuff between the kid and Uncle Remus, but, and the stories themselves came from Africa through the slaves, but, Joe, you got to give Joe Chandler Harris credit not only for appreciating the stories, but also for spelling them. You know, and that was one of the things that really challenged me when I was a kid, and it really turned me on when I was a kid was to see things like "bime by" spelled B-I-N-E-B-Y, things like "to be show" spelled like spelled T-O-O-B-Y-S-H-O, because I was just a little kid, and all of a sudden I realized that uh, it was possible to spell better than the dictionary. You could get out the sounds that words actually made, and you could go beyond, uh, um, you know, just using words as things that you could uh, tear out of the newspaper and paste down. You could make up words that were better than you know, new words, and you could uh, uh, make up words that actually pulled uh, the physical world down onto the page. And, Enable somebody, enable it to jump back up at somebody who, who read the page later. Uh, I bring all that up because it seems to me that, you, that it's possible to speak in, with a great deal of abstractness about uh, freedom of speech and uh, talk about the First Amendment as though it were some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, official thing that everybody knows is a good thing. In fact, I don't think many people use the First Amendment very much. Uh, not many people can afford to. You know, you can't uh, can't speak too uh, freely about your boss or your uh, fellow workers or your or even uh, the local police in most places because you don't really want to offend anybody because they know you and uh, you might have to deal with them sometime and uh, so you uh, you uh, say uh, you temper the freedom of your speech with politeness at the very least but at the same time you know that uh, uh, there is such a thing as freedom of speech and that uh, there's going to be somebody around who's enough who's obnoxious enough to use it and uh, that person probably will be obnoxious, but he'll probably be uh, valuable to you, too. 
because uh, that person will say uh, say things that need to be said. I mean, there's a, there are, you know, people go along thinking that bow wow is what a dog does, and then all of a sudden people say, no, a dog doesn't do, go bow wow, a dog goes wow or something. And, uh, and all of a sudden, everybody realizes that's true. They knew that all along, but uh, nobody else said it. You know, the story of the emperor's new clothes is that everybody, not only that the king caused everybody not to say that he was naked, but uh, everybody thought he was, didn't, you know, thought he had clothes on. They sat back and said, well, you know, deep down inside, they were thinking, well, it looks to me a lot like a naked king, but. Uh, you know, there he was in the parade, and he was talking about his new clothes, so he must must be just clothed in such a way to look an awful lot like he was naked. And, uh, and it looked kind of nice then, and uh, they regarded, regarded it respectfully, and they were uh, normal people. But there was one kid who all of a sudden started hollering, uh, the emperor's got no clothes. And that's what writers, uh, that's the kind of people writers tend to be, is people who, I mean, good writers, but people who, for some reason, aren't, uh, you know, I don't know, they have less to lose by speaking out, and uh, they take a certain perverse pleasure in speaking out, and uh, also they uh, really like the idea of, uh, of describing what a bar dog's bark sounds like and of uh, noticing what a naked king looks like. Just get a certain pleasure out of it. It's not that they uh, uh, are, are wise people necessarily. It's just that they notice things and they uh, and they are, have a knack for uh, putting those things into words. And if you don't have people like that, all of a sudden you're just living in the world of uh, nothing but bow wows, and uh, which means you're sort of cut off from the physical world. Seems to me that. Uh, Speech and people in the South appreciate, I think, the the affinity between uh, talking and eating. You know, I've written a lot of things about. Uh, maybe I'll read you a quick food poem. Don't find it. If not, you can just watch me. Um, anyway. So it's called "Song to Oysters." I like to eat an uncooked oyster. Nothing's slicker, nothing's moister. Nothing's easier on your gorge or when the time comes to discharge. But not to let it too long rest within your mouth is always best. For if your mind dwells on an oyster, nothing's slicker, nothing's moister. I prefer my oyster fried. Then I'm sure my oysters died. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, people in the South like to talk about food. That's the difference. You know, I've been I live up in New England now for some reason, and uh, a little town that reminds me a lot of North Georgia, except that people don't talk about food much. They uh, don't talk. One big difference between people in the South and people in the North, I think, is that people in the South are always going around saying, Woo, is it hot? I don't, you know. It is show before God hot, you know, and sitting around and sweating and, 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 and talking about how hot it is, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of spreading out. And, uh, and whereas people in the north come in the store and go, God, it's cold. You know, that's, uh, I think that has an has an effect on uh, the uh, expansiveness of your utterance. The always constricted against the cold. Uh, and I don't think people in the north talk about food. Maybe I mean they're probably ethnic. Uh, you know, Italians probably talk about food a lot, things like that. But just like uh, 
you Englanders, you know, uh, what you think of as your, uh, as your uh, Anglo-Saxon New England, and it just doesn't talk about food much. The, uh, uh, and that, that amazes me, because I, I always remember eating, eating dinner and everybody sitting around going, uh, you, know, you know, especially a big Sunday dinner or a holiday dinner, everybody's saying, better eat some more than peas, and uh, said, no, Lord, I couldn't eat another pea, I'd just explode. These sure were good uh, tomatoes. Where'd you get them tomatoes? Just, uh, I don't believe we've had tomatoes like that all summer. You know, and just go on and on and on. And meanwhile, everybody, I, the, I realize now, looking back, that uh, the ideal state, I achieved my all-time ideal state when I was about 12 years old, or no, 13, 14, when I could eat all the barbecue I wanted to without getting fat. Everything... Uh, you know, I could just eat forever. There was a period there where I could just eat forever, and I wanted to eat forever, and, uh, and it, you know, it was good for me. And I'll never, never be at that point again, but uh, I like to look back on it and remember how it was, and I like, like to get down, you know, I think there, my wife's from uh, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, and when she eats a piece of chicken, she leaves a lot on the bone, you know, and, and Maybe it's polite or something. I don't know, but you know, it seems to me that's just kind of an abstract way to eat chicken. You know, you say, "Well, I've eaten this piece of chicken." You know, it's like, you know, which, you know, and that's what I, I don't like uh, abstractness in life. I mean, I like. Seems to me, if you got a piece of chicken, it's a real challenge. You get down there, and you owe it to the chicken. You know, I mean, the institution of fried chicken takes a lot out of the chicken. And, uh, you have to, you have to do your part, I think, and appreciate it. The, uh, um, you get down in there, there's the, something that I've got a piece in here about chickens, and uh, one of the things I talk about, which I hate to say one of the things I talk about, but at any rate, that's, that's only because I don't want to be pretending that I've said it for the first time. And uh, one of the things is uh, the rib meat of chicken. Nobody ever really talks about that, but you know, when you get a chicken breast, piece of white meat, and and it's fried real good, so it's all kind of down in, uh, and you eat all the, the heavy meat off of it, and then in between the little bones is this little brown crispy stuff that uh, seems to be the ideal, uh, ideal meat. And uh, if you don't eat all that, I don't think you've eaten chicken at all. And uh, seems to me the language is like that. You really have to get down and savor it and get all the little whiffs and crackles of it and, uh, and use words not as though there's some kind of uh, you know thing you got out of a vending machine, but uh, use words as things that uh, you know you raised out in the backyard and uh, uh, chop the head off of and uh, and uh, cook just right and then ate just right, you know, and uh, save them and appreciate them and uh, recognize all the little uh, you know all their. Uh, uh, all their aspects. And I think that's the kind of thing that threatened, one of the things, that, all kinds of things threaten that, that kind of use of language. There's uh, television threatens it because television, people on TV don't tend to talk like people. I once wrote a piece for TV Guide about the Im image of Southerners in the, on sitcoms and things. It seemed to me that the uh, stronger a Southern accent was, the dumber the character. It was perfectly, uh, a clear uh, correlation there, you know, the Luke and Bud, or what was, the guy, what was, the, what was that show, the, the Dukes of Hazzard, the two guys 
two heroes could be from Southern California, for all you knew. But all their relatives and uh, all the bad guys uh, sounded like they were from Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that, well, I mean, it's an obvious uh, notion that uh, television speech is sort of washed out and, uh, and doesn't sound like uh, anybody you meet in the street. In fact, when somebody on television sounds like a real person, you're embarrassed for them. You know, it sounds like they're doing it on purpose or something. You know? I think that's, that's too bad. And I think that, uh, you know, you, uh, when you're writing for television, it's different from writing for, uh, for the page. You don't, uh, you just write it so it can be quickly understood and not so it can be chewed over and enjoyed. So TV, I think, is a, you know, they talk about all these book banners, but they, it's sort of like, to me, uh, talking about the Ku Klux Klan. It ought to be uh, opposed and vilified, but on the other hand, opposing and vilifying the Ku Klux Klan don't uh, say everything there is to say about racism. You know? And uh, opposing and vilifying book burners, banners doesn't say everything there is to say about uh, uh, limit, limiting freedom of speech. There's a whole lot of big companies that uh, are involved in both uh, racism and uh, limiting freedom of speech. You know? A whole lot of corporations and things. And, uh, and big policies that uh, that uh, may be more, uh, that are certainly more insidious and uh, more powerful than uh, all these folks who enjoy pronouncing the word smut and going around to libraries and causing trouble. Uh, you know, the book, uh, when you're, once you get to be an author, you realize that uh, uh, book banning is actually just a slightly more vir virulent form of publishing because uh, publishers themselves uh, do a great job of keeping books out of the stores. You know, and, uh, every every time you go around to a book and author dinner, all the authors sit around and uh, talk about what the publishers have done to them lately. And uh, it's it's a and one thing the publishers do is that if a book doesn't sell pretty well, they'll just uh, they'll uh, uh, shred it. You know, and somehow book shredding bothers me more than book banning does. Uh, you, uh, a friend of mine was trying to teach, uh, read a novel by Cormac McCarthy, he wanted to teach it at Vanderbilt, and uh, it came out two years ago, and he called up Random House and uh, said he'd like to order about 100 copies so he could teach it in his uh, fiction class, and they said, well, we shredded that. And uh, you know, he went all around the country trying to find, he got had people searching for it, and he found three or four copies, but that wasn't enough to teach it. That's a book that came out two years ago, and a real good book. All kinds of things that, uh, that work against uh, good writing and, and, and expression. And sometimes, in fact, I think that book banners kind of raise, uh, book banners take books a lot more seriously than uh, publishers do, which is kind of nice. They do it in the wrong-headed way and, uh, and all, but at least they, and they probably never read the book, but, uh, you know, for instance, uh, just to cite another dumb example of, uh, of banning the book, there's Diary of Anne Frank, which uh, just in the paper the other day somebody was trying to get, did in fact get it off the reading list, uh, high school reading list for a while. Uh, the principal very courageously said, well, we'll take it off for a while, then we'll uh, let the this, uh, committee decide whether to take it off for good. Instead of saying, well, okay, we'll let the committee decide whether it ought to be taken off, but meanwhile we'll leave it on. You know, and just have a few people walking around yelling and hollering and can take a great book out of the library, and that ain't right. And uh, one of the, some of the objections to uh, Diary of Anne Frank have been that it reflects inappropriate adolescent behavior. 
I don't know how, if you're hiding in an attic from the Nazis, I don't know how you can uh, have appropriate adolescent behavior. But uh, these people uh, also objected to uh, Diary of Anne Frank because it perpetuates the myth that the Holocaust occurred. Also, it shows an acceptance of disrespect for authority. There are a lot of people there, uh, a school of what passes for thought, but uh, there weren't many, uh, uh, there weren't six million Jews uh, murdered, but, uh, you know, maybe a million. But, uh, or, uh, you know, and I think it's, uh, that's a uh, disgusting uh, thesis, but it's, uh, great to be in a country where people can come up with uh, notions uh, even as preposterous as that and get them printed because, you know, it makes you stop and think, well, maybe the Holocaust didn't occur. Why do, why do I know that the Holocaust occurred? And then you think back to all those pictures in Life magazine and one thing or another, and uh, you know why you know. And uh, it's good to have people challenging everything, even if they And sometimes uh, the challenge, I referred to book banners as jerks a while back and immediately realized I was guilty of the same kind of sin that I saw in an anti-moral majority film that was being screened at the booksellers convention in Nashville. They were showing all these guys like Jerry Falwell on TV uh, and it, and I, it uh, makes me feel as rotten to watch Jerry Falwell on television, maybe even a little more, no, I don't know. Well, different. In some ways, I hate watching Jerry Falwell more, and in some ways less than watching Ronald Reagan. But uh, at any rate, I hate watching uh, Jerry Falwell on television. But uh, and therefore, I agreed and agreed with this the point of view of this film, which was that while people like Jerry Falwell have the right to uh, say what they say, they shouldn't uh, be able to tell other people what to say and shouldn't limit the kind of books people read. But all of a sudden, in the midst of this. Uh, unimpeachable, uh, uh, this film with unimpeachable uh, thesis, there was this uh, kid sitting out in the audience listening to Jerry Falwell or somebody, this hair-lipped kid sitting there, kind of simple-minded blonde kid waving the American flag, and uh, the camera lingered on him for some time. It struck me that uh, the fact that a hair-lipped kid who doesn't look too smart and likes to wave the American flag uh, likes Jerry Falwell is, n is neither here nor there. In fact, it seemed to me sort of cruel. And it seemed to me the same kind of thing that Jerry Falwell does, which is to assume on uh, sort of bow-wow grounds that certain people and certain uh, things are, are uh, not worthy of respect. Uh, and I think that not only that uh, there's a certain kind of intellectual arrogance that uh, book banners can um, perceive as an ironic thing, but, uh, uh, and I think they're wrong because I think that Mark Twain is the uh, best American novel, and, uh, and Ernest Hemingway was right when he said that uh, American fiction begins with Huckleberry Finn, and that the three great American things are jazz, Mark Twain, and the Constitution. But, once the other things are said, I think it's, uh, Worth considering that uh, Huckleberry Finn is a white book written by a white man, and it's about slavery. And uh, I can, uh, and I think, if a black writer had written written it, it would, uh, that you know, people say, how can people object to Jim? You know, 
old Jim, he's the sweetest man in the world. Uh, how, can, how can any black reader be offended by that? But uh, it seems to me entirely possible that uh, if I were a runaway slave, I wouldn't be so uh, such a sweet man. And uh, might have even said, uh, Huck, honey, it's time for you to get off this raft and uh, let me, uh, let me uh, take, uh, you know, get serious about getting away. Uh, and I think it'd be worthwhile for Huckleberry Finn to be read alongside uh, books like uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison and uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright, which uh, are a lot less, uh, which instead of focusing on the on white boys' problems about slavery, focused on, uh, on black people's uh, problems with, uh, with racism, bigotry. Uh, so, I, and uh, I certainly don't think that Huck Finn ought to be off the required reading list, but I think it's good to stop and think why it should be on and whether some other things ought to be on alongside it. And also to remember that um, just because something's a great book doesn't mean there's not anything wrong with it. Uh, doesn't mean it can't be improved on. You know, there seems to me the answer to uh, a book is not banning it, but to write another book. Um, somebody was telling me that. Uh, one of the books that people try to ban is Grapes of Wrath because it makes America look bad or something because all these Okies are getting bad treatment. Somebody was telling me that somebody, when Grapes of Wrath came out, somebody actually wrote a novel called The Grapes of Joyousness which showed the other side of the, you know, some old, tell the story of how some Okies went out west, west and uh, everybody was real sweet to them and uh, nobody beat them up and uh, they all stayed together none of them died and uh, within about a year they had their own house, you know, and uh, I think that uh, what you know, if you don't like the diary of Anne Frank, you ought to write the diary of a young girl uh, in that situation. That uh, there was a lot more pleasant. See how people, uh, you know, maybe people will believe that, and if they will, then you've you've uh, made your point. But I don't think that I don't think they believe it. Now the reason they won't believe it is that uh, uh, Anne Frank's uh, diary is, uh, you know. It's not a Bow Wow diary. It describes uh, the reason you can tell a book's good is because it, uh, it's not just in Bow Wow words, but it, it makes the dog bark and makes people actually talk. And uh, it doesn't really it matters uh, whether the writer is uh, decent, has a, you know, is, has an enlightened point of view. But it, that's not the main thing. The main thing is that he's actually got people talking and uh, getting into interesting things on the page. I think that if you look at a lot of stuff uh, Faulkner wrote sort of topical stuff and sort of stuff about uh, problems in the South that it seems kind of dated and, uh, and uh, not all that great. But uh, the uh, great thing is that the stuff bubbling up uh, beneath that and, uh, and uh, you know, the real characters are on the page. Which is not to say that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, Faulkner's not necessarily the last word on slavery either. But, uh, but, you know, Faulkner's there, and Faulkner's there to criticize, and, uh, and uh, the reason he's there is because uh, the, of the language and because of how he renders real uh, things on the page. And, uh, uh, and that kind of, uh, to do that requires a certain amount of uh, uh, risk on the writer's part, because the writer doesn't know whether he's getting at something real or not. You know, it's a lot safer to write Bow Wow than you know people will say, yeah, that's right. That's what is commonly assumed to be what a dog says, and, uh, and nobody's going to make fun of you for saying that a dog says Bow Wow. What's that, uh, if, if you decide that uh, a dog says, uh, 
half path or something like that, and uh, and you go out on a limb and write that, and people might make fun of you with good reason. But uh, so uh, you know, you kind of got to go off. In order to the irony is that in order to describe what something actually looks like, you got to go off into the unknown. And uh, you know, you go up when, as your kid being told what marriage is like. It's like being uh, it's another bow wow thing. Well, it's marriage, and you have wife and family and and husband and uh, children and it all holds together and that's the way it ought to be and then you get married and you realize it's uh, uh, a lot more complicated than that and but to write about marriage is like trying to write about what uh, I mean to write about it well is like trying to write about the actual sound a dog makes you really have to go out on a limb and you have to resist resist uh, writing something that's really silly and really dumb and really bad and really vile and uh, uh, write something that everybody will look at you and think, what in the world kind of person would write something like that? You know, I, I can, I remember, you know, it seems to me that uh, when you, when I feel like I'm writing something good, it's when I'm writing something that I don't have any idea what I'm getting into. You know, uh, I started out writing about something and all of a sudden, it's, uh, sudden it sort of takes off in a certain, in a new direction. I don't even know what the direction is or anything, but I feel like I kind of got a grip on it and it's like, uh, this new horse sort of suddenly materialized between uh, beneath my seat and uh, going off somewhere, but I feel like it's a, an actual horse. And uh, and in order to have the freedom to do, in order to be able to do that and to take the kind of risk of, uh, of just sort of going off and doing something that you don't know what's going to happen, you got to have a, you got to be free. You can't have people looking over your shoulder saying, uh, "No, that's not the way a horse goes." You know, you got to have. Uh, you got to be able to pursue it, and First Amendment enables people to to pursue it. Uh, people take the First Amendment for granted, but it uh, it, it uh, frees people up to uh, say silly things and also wise things, and uh, has to free them up to say both things because nobody knows the difference between the two until a couple of years later, usually. So if you decide ahead of time, or even Right away, what, what's silly and what's wise, you're not ever going to get anything wise. Now, I want to read uh, the uh, right quick a thing which seems to be sort of illustrative of, of this, though I don't know whether that's true or not. But uh, it's called Facing Ismism. It seems to me to have to do with the fact that you uh, shouldn't try to, even though they're, well, I'll read it first. People say to me, why don't you go on the lecture circuit like so many others do? and rake in so many dollars a night while stirring vocal, even bodily enthusiasm in auditors numbering into the hundreds and thousands right there physically in front of you, instead of sitting all alone like you do, going ticky-ticky-ticky on an empty piece of paper rolled into a lonesome machine. I say, well, I tried that. Yeah, I used to go out there on the Hustings, which is what those of us who are in that profession call them in honor of Colonel Reese Hustings, who in 1907 took his oration about galvanism and microdots around 107 different American cities and towns in 129 days. I never developed the eloquence it would take to convince crowd after crowd, as the colonel did, that microdots were scattered like silica gel over every American's skin and hair and could tune in the infinite. He never even had to move into galvanism many a night. He could go on about microdots alone to the great majority of heart's content. What I did do, though, was get into creationism very early on. I went from community college to community college at $200 a pop, telling groups of the credulous that what we needed was not just creationist science, 
but creationist football and creationist journalism as well, and scientific religion. Sure, religion can be scientific, I made clear. Back with the ancient Greeks, religion was empirical. If you propitiated the gods, there wouldn't be any of them swooping down and mounting you in the guise of a swan. And it worked. You could test it out. But where I ran into trouble, I had a backup group, the Royalettes, behind me, going so fine, so fine, so fine. Three black women back there getting it. And I had people come to me after the show and say, that's racist. I had to stop and think. Well, I guess it was. I guess I was implying, unthinkingly, that black people could get it better than white. So I engaged three white women. To tell the truth, they didn't get it quite as well, but they got it pretty well. And I had people come up to me after the show and say, that's sexist. And I had to stop and think. Well, I guess it was true. I was implying that people could get, women could get it better than men. So I got me three backup men. Call them the Roysters. They didn't get it quite as well as the women, for my taste, but they got it all right. But then they'd get to fighting so bad. And then, too, some people came up and said, are your men all straight? And I said, well, I think so. And I went off to the side and made them dress right, dress, and they looked pretty straight to me. But no, the people said, we're talking about you being heterosexist. And I had to admit that I was implying, without meaning to, that straight men got it better than gay. So I made some changes. Next time I was all ready to say, the one in the middle is gay and the other two don't mind at all. <laughs> but this time the people said, you're being ageist. And I had to admit that I had been unconsciously implying that young people get it better than old. So I got three old men, one of whom was straight, one of whom was gay, and one of whom was so old it didn't make any difference to him. <laughs> And they didn't really get it as well as the young ones, but they still added something. And the next show, some animal rights people came up and said, that's speciesist. And I had to admit that I was suggesting that people get it better than other species. So I tried pigs. Well, first I tried dogs, but they got to fighting worse than oysters used to. I'd be, back, I'd be pounding home a point, and the royotes, I call them, would be back there going, yank, 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 and chew it on each other. Then I tried cats, but they were too independent and threw up. So pigs. Pigs are smart, but they aren't meant for a course. You're on tour and your bus is getting lower and lower on the shocks and you come to realize it's them pigs. The chorus, getting heavier and heavier. But I stuck with them and then one evening I was waxing up a pretty high sheen on creationism and the pigs were back there getting it. Not too well, but pretty well. You notice I don't say for pigs. And somebody came up right in the middle of my talk and said, that's elitist. So I put the pigs out front. <laughs> went, along, went along that way for a while, tried it with them getting it out front while I tried to make the talk, and with me getting it in back while they tried to make the talk. And one night a committee came up to the stage and said, is your man back there a secular humanist? And tell you the truth, I just tiptoed away and let the pigs deal with it. <laughs> I decided if people couldn't tell where I stood with the minority community on the one hand and with the divine presence on the other, just from the text of my remarks, they weren't ever going to be placated in my presence. So now I do text exclusively. And I know in my soul there are people out there finding me wanting on all kinds of ismic and istic grounds, but I can't hear them doing it. 
I do miss hearing somebody going so fine, so fine, so fine behind me. But let me tell you one thing. Black, white, men, women, straight, gay, old, young, human, canine, feline, pork. They will all eat and drink up four and a half cents of every nickel you clear. And there's not a blessed one of them that you can be safe in assuming is not hopped up on some kind of drug. Well, thank you. Anybody got any questions? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think so. I think it's a terrible thing. It, it, it has to do with, you used, used to be able to depreciate your stocks of books or something, and, and they took that up. Yeah. 